and welcome to Bedrock, a podcast on Earth's earliest history. I'm your host, Dylan Wilmeth. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Ella Holm, a postdoctoral researcher at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, and a good friend of mine. Dr. Holm and I met in 2018 on the Astrobiology Grand Tour. With other researchers, we took a tour of Western Australia, looking at some of the oldest fossils on Earth. Dr. Holm did her PhD at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York, on carbonate minerals. But today, I'll be interviewing her on a different mineral, olivine. Longtime listeners of the show will be very familiar with olivine. I've sprinkled it throughout almost every episode. In episode four, I teased the possibility that olivine could have a much larger role in humanity's future. Human activity is producing a lot of carbon dioxide that is ending up in the atmosphere and is beginning to change how our world functions. CO2 does rise and fall across Earth's history, but the rate at which we are doing it is unprecedented. Countries and companies are trying to lower their emissions, and this is a great tack. We should keep doing it. Another solution is to soak up carbon dioxide and turn it into something else. Trees do this all the time, but Dr. Holm and other researchers are looking at minerals that can do something similar, and the best example is olivine. But that's enough from me. Without any further ado, Dr. Ella Holm. Dr. Holm, Ella, thank you so much for being on the show. It's an honor to have you as the first guest. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, excited to talk about olivine. Before we get into, you know, the nitty gritty of the grit itself, so to speak, (laughs) how did you, tell us a bit about yourself. How did you get your start in geology and what drew you to the field that eventually came to olivine? Sure. So something that's been true from the time that I was pretty young is that I've always been the most drawn to the things that I find the scariest. For example, when I was really little, I thought that werewolves were going to present like a pretty significant problem in my life. And because of that, I started taking out all the books that my library had about werewolves so that when the werewolf menace inevitably showed up at my door, I would be prepared. (laughs) Um, And I think the real turning point for me that uh, put me on the path that I am on now is in 2004 when the giant tsunami hit Southeast Asia. And that terrified me. That gave me nightmares, not just for months, for years. <laughs> and uh, because of that, I became really fascinated with tsunamis. I did the same thing. I was taking out books from my library. I was watching documentaries. And even to the point where I started college, I decided to major in marine science with focuses in geology and in physics because I wanted to study tsunamis. I wanted to learn more about them and help make uh, better early warning systems and stuff like that. And that went on until I learned that I hated physics, uh, but I loved chemistry. And uh, the next thing that really set me on my current path was I watched a documentary called Chasing Ice. And for people who haven't seen Chasing Ice, it's a really great documentary about glaciers melting. And it gives a lot of great photographic evidence to show how quickly that's happening. And I'd always been aware of climate change, you know, like I watched An Inconvenient Truth in like 2007, same as everybody else. But this was the first time that it really became real for me, I would say. And then, of course, that became the scariest thing to me. So I had to know everything about it. Uh, And that's really what made me start devoting my life to climate science. And I was in paleoclimate for a while through my PhD. I was studying paleoclimate on Earth and Mars. 
And that eventually led me to modern climate change, uh, which is what I'm working on now. I have one quick question. When you were sure. worried about tsunamis, did you live in an area where you could experience a tsunami? Absolutely not. I lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, but I did have nightmares about tsunamis coming in through Lake Michigan and getting me while I was on the school bus. Yeah, that's a fair question. I've never heard of a tsunami, you know, or just any large event like that in the Great Lakes, but now I don't know. Maybe you're going to spread this fear into other Great Lakes citizens. Uh, yeah, that, that, that was my goal uh, coming on this podcast. I don't know any werewolves, but if I if I do, I'll... Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've got the knowledge. I can take care of problems. I read a lot of books. Well, knowledge and taking care of problems is exactly what you're doing in real life. It might not be a silver bullet, but it's an olivine bullet. So um, again, I have, uh, I have mentioned olivine over and over again, sort of grinding it into people's heads. We've seen it in asteroids. We've seen it in the mantle. But just in case someone's dropping in right now, Ella, what does olivine look like and what's, what's in it? What is olivine? So olivine is an igneous mineral. Uh, it has a lot of silicon in it because it forms from magma or lava, and it is an iron and magnesium silicon mineral. And if you just see it in your hands, it's a really pretty green color. So olivine's a cool mineral. So we've sort of been dancing around why this is really interesting. Why are you and other people so interested in olivine for humanity's future? So people who are researching carbon capture when it comes to minerals like olivine are really interested in accelerating natural weathering cycles that already control the carbon cycle on Earth now and throughout geologic time. So we've known for a really long time that these igneous minerals that we find in basalt, which is formed on land and on the seafloor, have a strong control on drawing down carbon from the atmosphere. And the reason that is, is because when you have a lot of carbon in the atmosphere, it interacts with seawater and uh, seawater can absorb a lot of carbon dioxide. And that forms carbonic acid in seawater. And when carbonic acid interacts with basaltic rock, you get a weathering reaction that forms magnesium and iron ions in seawater, as well as the bicarbonate ion, which is stable in seawater over geologic timescales. So that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about the weathering reaction of olivine. And basically what researchers like myself and others are doing is looking at how we can accelerate that weathering process to make sure that it's happening on human timescales rather than geologic timescales. The reason that we're interested in olivine in my research right now is because olivine is the most reactive of the minerals that we're looking at in basalt. So olivine, you can theoretically weather quite quickly, and therefore you can draw down more carbon in a shorter time scale. And that's exactly what we need right now for humanity's future. So it's, it's common. We can find it around various places. Do we know of any other like rare minerals that could do this faster? Honestly, I'm a little bit new to this game, so I'm not sure about rare minerals, but uh, mm -hmm. you can also do this with carbonates. Uh, so you can do this with limestone. There are, of course, benefits to doing it with limestone because uh, limestone can react much more quickly. But when you react with limestone, you're also releasing CO2 at the same time. So depending on the scale, you can also have these back reactions that make it uh, less efficient for sequestering carbon. than It's kind of leaky in that way. Yeah, exactly. Just for a brief analogy, that's kind of what's happening to coral reefs, right? The carbonic mm -hmm. acid you mentioned about is reacting with these carbonate minerals in these 
unfortunate corals. That's a reaction, just like what's happening with olivine, but it's not quite the reaction we want that's gonna take CO2 down all the way. Exactly, that's correct. So that's what happens on a small scale. Could you estimate how much olivine, how many beaches or how many kilograms or how much of it will we need to start really counterbalancing CO2 production to start drawing down these curves that we see all the time? I mean, the answer is a lot. We need to be reacting several thousands of tons of olivine every year. So I'm not sure how easy that is to visualize. I'm not quite sure how many beaches worth that would be, but at least a pretty big beach, I would say. The important thing I think to say is that even though it will take a lot of scaling up and it will mean going through a lot of olivine, it's also just important to start small. The first step to a long journey is just moving your feet. We we definitely have a lot of work ahead of us in terms of scaling up, but I, I... think that starting small is also okay. From, from small things, big things grow. We, we saw that with exactly. the earth itself. It started off with all these tiny grains of olivine, but eventually it becomes something big. So that's, I, I like that message personally. Whenever I hear about something new, something that's going to help combat, this is going to fix, I think, okay, what are the byproducts of this reaction? And do we have to worry about their harm on the environment? So you mentioned it before, but what are the byproducts of carbonic acid plus olivine? And do we have to worry about these at all? So that's one of the really great things about uh, reacting olivine is that when you interact olivine with carbonic acid, what you have are magnesium, iron, bicarbonate ion, and dissolved silica, which are all things that already exist in the ocean. So if you are releasing those into the ocean, you're also increasing the alkalinity of the ocean, which is important for the local ecosystems. It is something that researchers are looking into in terms of monitoring the ecological impact of these weathering reactions. But again, these weathering reactions occur in nature as well. So we're not trying to add anything new. We're just trying to speed up what the earth already does on its own. I'm curious, I've heard of various other techniques, but perhaps you could tell us more about how the olivine method compares to something else. Sure. So there are a lot of different ideas for carbon capture out there. I'm sure one that a lot of people are familiar with is planting a lot of trees and having more forests that can draw down carbon more efficiently. And I think that sometimes if we read the news, there's a tendency to think like, oh, this new carbon capture technology is going to change everything, or uh, this is going to be the thing that saves us. When in actuality, it's really a sum of the moving parts, right? The carbon production that humanity has gotten to at this point requires more than one technology. So I think it's going to be a big amalgam of a lot of different things. And like, you can use olivine, you can use carbonates, you can use basalts. It reacts a little bit more slowly than olivine to use all of those minerals at the same time, but it still is effective. And it's still something that happens on geological timescales to uh, draw down carbon from the atmosphere. That was just a roundabout way of saying that all of these things are going to be important as we move forward. Well, that makes sense to me because as far as producing the carbon dioxide or other gases like methane, we talk about fossil fuels a lot, and that's true, but there's also agriculture, you know, cows and rice. So the start of this situation we're in now is complicated and has a lot of sources. 
So it kind of makes sense that we're going to have to get an Avengers of carbon capture system. You've got, I guess, the Hulk would obviously be olivine. You know, it's it's green. Obviously. Or, or I guess that's also trees too. I don't I don't want to get into Marvel territory. They might come and sue me, but um. <laughs> <laughs> But that, that's a good way to see it. We're all working together as a team to try to solve this. And if we want to go with the Marvel metaphor, I think it's also important to note that the Hulk should really be comprehensive climate policy uh, because <laughs> carbon capture technology buys us time. But at the end of the day, we still need to get to net zero emissions if we want to have a chance of solving climate change. So those things also work in tandem. Well, She-Hulk is a lawyer, so hopefully she can get that stuff in there. <laughs> Perfect. So, so speaking of just cool stories in general, I want to end it back on the personal note. What's your coolest field or laboratory study? It doesn't have to be with Olivine, but what's something that sticks in your brain? You, you were there, actually. Do you remember when we were driving through the Australian outback and mm-hmm. there was a giant bushfire on either side of us? And we were just in the back of these ute trucks uh, yep. <laughs> and uh, driving through flames on either side. We had to stop and get out and people were moving burning branches out of the side. Uh, that sticks in my mind. I don't know about you. Uh, oh, yeah. And- I was wondering if you were going to bring that up. That's Still oh, yeah. probably not not even like top five or top three field moments, but moments of being alive. It never really felt like we were truly, truly in danger. Just I just want to get that out of the way. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. As far as no, every, everyone was very. It wasn't like it rushed in on us. It was it was a bushfire. You know, got to mm-hmm. keep your head up. But it was not like we were running for our lives. But still, yeah. with that in mind, it was just incredible to be in and see. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with that. That's definitely in my top moments of my human experience. Yeah. I'll put some pictures up from this experience. I've got a lot of field photos. So you can go to bedrockpodcast.com and look up this interview and you will see photos from exactly what Ella and I are talking about. It was, <laughs> it was an experience. <laughs> um, it, it truly was. Maybe on a less intense note, what's something not geology related that brightens up your day? Um, I'm extremely passionate about coffee. Uh, so coffee brightens my day every day. Uh, Probably wouldn't surprise you considering how I started off this interview, Uh, but I really love horror. I really Hmm. love horror movies, horror books. Uh, Consume a lot of that. Uh, I love music, especially punk music. I'm a vegan. I like to cook. That brightens my day. All those things. Talking to friends. Love doing that. (laughs) Hey, well, then I'm glad that we could do this. Yeah, me too. On that note, it was fantastic to have you around, Ella. Um, Great to talk to you again. Thank you so much for being the first guest. Uh, You explained Olivine so well. And um, where can can people find you if they want to find you on social media, if you want to be found on social media? If you don't, I don't blame you. I don't. (laughs) Uh, No, that's okay. If people want to find me, uh, I'm on Twitter at BanditEllaFormation. To be honest, I post a lot more political content than I do uh, science content. So fair warning to those who might seek me out. Uh, But yeah, feel free to reach out to me on there. I'm happy to talk about this stuff more. And we'll put all the contact links in the video description or audio description as well. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you for having me on. This was a blast. Thank you for listening to Bedrock, a part of Bee Giants Media. As the show takes off, I would love to hear your input on style, topics, and people to interview. You can drop me a line at bedrock.mailbox at gmail.com. 
See you next time.